Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, mutilation, and racism. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. At the turn of the 20th century, a young clerk named Edmund D. Morell worked for the prestigious Elder Dempster Lines, an international shipping company. Among the company's most important clients was the King of the Belgians, Leopold II. One day, while looking over the company's reports, Morell spotted something unusual. Leopold's colony in Central Africa, the Congo Free State, was ostensibly run as a humanitarian project, building roads, schools, and hospitals in the heart of Africa. But according to the reports Morell read, the king was shipping massive quantities of weapons and ammunition to the Congo, enough to equip an army. Even more curiously, the shipments of guns and bullets were not on the official public logs. Rather, it appeared as if the king wanted them to be kept confidential. A disturbing realization crept over Morel. Something was happening in the Congo that King Leopold didn't want the world to see. As Morel dug deeper, he discovered that the king was hiding crimes of an unimaginable scale. The Congo Free State was supposed to save the local Africans. Instead, millions of them were being enslaved and dying. And all so that one man could get very, very rich. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're exploring the reigns of despot monarchs who ruled just before or during World War I. We'll explore King Leopold II of Belgium, Emperor Franz Josef of Austria-Hungary, and the three Pashas of the Ottoman Empire. Last week, we discussed Leopold II's obsession with colonization and how he schemed and conned the rest of the world into giving him land to enrich himself. Today, we're exploring the horrific crimes perpetrated by King Leopold's regime in the Congo, which cost millions of lives and destroyed the region. And we'll explore the long and difficult struggle to expose those crimes to the world. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. 
One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. By 1885, 50-year-old Leopold II had established the Congo Free State in Central Africa, a territory roughly the size of Western Europe. For decades, Leopold had angled for a colony in the hopes of enriching himself and glorifying Belgium. After years of scheming, Leopold had his prize. But even though he managed to carve out a domain in Central Africa, the Belgian government and people wanted nothing to do with it. To ease their fears of being forced to deal with the colony, Leopold assured Parliament that he would rule the Congo Free State as sole sovereign. Thus, the Congo was Leopold's own personal fiefdom, unconstrained by Belgian or any other law. Unfortunately, he still had to figure out a way to pay for it. Colonies tend to be expensive ventures, especially before you're able to extract resources to make them profitable. Since the Congo was Leopold's personal property, he had to fund the whole enterprise himself. By the end of 1889, the king's finances were stretched to their limits. Bankers in Europe refused to extend him loans. And even after plundering the inheritance of his wealthy sister, Leopold didn't have the necessary funds. There was only one place where he could get the money he needed, the Belgian government. Parliament had never wanted a colony, but by the early 1890s, they were starting to warm to the idea of having one. With ivory coming out of the Congo in greater quantities, the government realized there might be money in the jungle after all. At the time, ivory was a highly sought-after commodity. Typically harvested from slain elephants, it could be shipped out of the Congo Free State at a substantial profit. Once Leopold dangled that carrot, he didn't hesitate to reel Parliament in. He said that in exchange for a loan, he would draft a will in which he left the colony to Belgium. To sweeten the deal, Leopold offered that in 10 years, Parliament could choose to either accept ownership of the colony or demand repayment of the loan. The government agreed and gave the king 25 million francs, roughly 155 million U.S. dollars today. And all of it was interest-free. Rather than thank his countrymen for pulling him out of a jam, Leopold turned right around and screwed them over. Sometime after securing the loan, Leopold broke the news that he had also borrowed 5 million francs from a banker named Brown de Tige. The security for this second loan required Leopold to mortgage a large portion of the colony to de Tige. And since Leopold was unable to repay the loan, he would have to soon hand over much of the Congo to de Tige the same land that was already promised to Belgium. Unwilling to lose a significant area of their Congo inheritance, Parliament decided they had to annex the entire Congo. However, when the Belgian people learned of this, they were furious. They had never wanted a colony in the first place, and now their government was dragging them all into the game. Against this wave of public backlash, Parliament abandoned the annexation. Instead, they agreed to pay off Leopold's 5 million franc loan. And for reasons that are unclear, 
they gave Leopold an extra 1.5 million francs. And here's the kicker. It turns out Leopold had never actually borrowed money from Brown de Tige. He simply made up the whole story in order to con the Belgian government into giving him more money. And it worked. Of course, during this long process, Leopold couldn't resist trying to expand his already enormous holding. The Congo Free State was gigantic. It was bigger than Spain, France, England, Germany, and Italy combined. But not content with what he had won, Leopold needed more. Leopold had his eyes on the Nile River. If he could stake a claim on a portion of the Nile, he would have access to another significant means of transport and solidify his grasp on Central Africa. His advisors thought it insanity to seize the Nile on top of everything he had already won. In response, Leopold simply said, Do you consider worth nothing the glory of being a pharaoh? In order to satisfy his appetite for power, Leopold came up with a cunning plan. The Congo's northern lands border Sudan, which in the mid-1880s was in a state of political upheaval. The Ottoman governor Mehmet Emin Pasha was being pressed by rebels and was virtually trapped in the Nile River town of Lado. Though the Ottomans claimed the region, their control was essentially non-existent. The British, who ostensibly held joint custody of Sudan, in fact, ran the show. Unfortunately, they were juggling too many other conflicts and couldn't help Pasha. Back in Europe, the idea of a privately funded relief expedition gained traction. And the man asked to lead the expedition was none other than Henry Morton Stanley, the explorer who had helped secure the Congo for Leopold. Stanley desperately wanted to lead the expedition, but he was still technically employed by Leopold as a consultant. Leopold agreed to release him from his contract, but only if Stanley led his expedition the longer route by way of an unexplored rainforest, and if when he rescued Pasha, he convinced him to switch masters. Pasha could remain as governor, but Leopold wanted the province to be attached to the Congo Free State instead of the Ottoman Empire. In early 1887, Stanley began his relief expedition with 800 soldiers, porters, and camp followers divided into two columns. Almost immediately, it turned out to be a disaster. More than half of the men in Stanley's column died during the trek. Some were killed by locals defending their homes and families, while others succumbed to disease. By the time the survivors straggled into Lotto in 1888, they were the ones in need of rescue. Eamon Pasha greeted them, but politely declined the offer to join the Congo Free State. In fact, Stanley had taken so long to reach Lotto that the rebels were no longer a threat to him. But while the whole expedition accomplished nothing, Leopold did have success elsewhere. In 1892, a war broke out in the eastern part of the Congo between Belgian soldiers and Arab slave traders from Zanzibar. The main cause of the clash was likely control of the ivory trade. But Leopold successfully framed the struggle as anti-slavery Christians fighting against Arab slavers. 
By 1894, the Belgians had won a complete victory and added a significant territory to the Congo Free State. Meanwhile, Leopold basked in international acclaim as a hero in the fight against slavery. The war may have expanded the king's territory, but it was expensive. In order to pay for it all, Leopold became even more determined to extract every drop of wealth out of the Congo. Since the king now owned the Congo, it seemed perfectly natural to demand that the land's residents pay taxes. But Leopold expected his taxes to be paid in sweat and blood. Coming up, King Leopold creates a reign of terror in the Congo. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own. Or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By 1894, King Leopold II had secured the finances to continue operating his colony in the Congo. Now he needed to turn a profit. And to do that, he would have to extract ivory by any means necessary. In order to transport ivory to the coast, extensive infrastructure had to be built, all on the backs of Africans. Working conditions were atrocious. Porters, generally enslaved, were often worked to death. Once, for a 600-mile journey to establish a new post, 300 porters were conscripted. Not a single one returned. A Belgian senator visiting the Congo described the porters as miserable, most of them sickly, drooping under a burden increased by tiredness and insufficient food. They come and go like this by the thousands, dying along the road, or the journey over, heading off to die from overwork in their villages. Of course, the porters weren't just adults. Many were children. One witness reported seeing children as young as seven or eight being made to carry loads of material throughout the day. Punishments were vicious, even for the children. 
a man named Stanislav Lefranc went to the Congo to work as a magistrate. One morning, he saw about 30 or so children lined up waiting to be flogged. Each child had been sentenced to 50 lashes of a whip. Their crime? Laughing in the presence of a white man. Lefranc intervened and stopped the last 25 lashes from happening. But he was ordered to never interfere again. Few of Leopold's agents spoke out against the horrors they witnessed or inflicted. One reason was, unsurprisingly, race. To many Europeans, Africans were seen as less than human. Another reason was an all-too-natural obedience to authority, coupled with the fact that this system benefited them. According to historian Adam Hochschild, for a white man to rebel meant challenging the system that provided your livelihood. Everyone around you was participating. By going along with the system, you were paid, promoted, awarded medals. But although Leopold's European agents ran the Congo, they also created a class of African foremen among those they colonized and involved them in their regime. As such, they relied heavily on these African mercenaries to act as their middlemen. Besides filling out the manpower required, the mercenaries provided white administrators with psychological distance from some of their crimes. White agents might order floggings and executions, but they often outsourced the actual violence to these foremen. Eventually, these mercenaries would be organized into an army called the Force Publique. Within 12 years, it would grow into a force of 19,000 soldiers, accounting for more than half of the Congo's budget. A large army was necessary. As Leopold's men moved further into the Congo, many locals fought to protect their lives and homes. Historian Adam Hochschild notes that more than a dozen different ethnic groups staged major rebellions against Leopold's rule. The actions of Leopold's agents are what compelled locals to defend themselves. For example, a Belgian agent named Eugène Rommel built a station along the Lower Congo Rapids named Baka Baka, or Capture Capture. From this outpost, Rommel abducted women and schoolgirls and forced them into sex work. In December of 1893, a local chief named Inzanzu of Kazi decided to fight back. He ambushed and killed Rommel, then burnt Baka Baka to the ground. Afterward, Inzanzu set his sights on more Belgian outposts. He continued to fight against Leopold's troops for some five years, though his ultimate fate is unknown. While indigenous groups fought for their lives, foreign witnesses attempted to expose the Congo Free State's crimes to the world. Among the first to document what was really going on in the Congo was a black American named George Washington Williams. In 1890, Williams, a lawyer and journalist, spent six months in the Congo. What he witnessed shocked and horrified him, so much so that he was compelled to write an open letter to Leopold detailing the atrocities being committed by his regime. Williams described all manner of crimes, soldiers burning down villages, locals put in chains for minor offenses, women being kidnapped and forced into sex work. While Williams was still traveling around Africa, the letter was published as a pamphlet and widely distributed in Europe and the United States. 
Leopold, of course, quickly marshaled his resources to fight back against the accusations. Unfortunately, Williams had given Leopold some ammunition. In the full title of the letter, Williams referred to himself as a Colonel of the United States Army. Though he was a former soldier, he hadn't made the rank of Colonel, which made it easier for Leopold to discredit him. Still, many newspapers took Williams' testimony seriously. One Belgian newspaper wrote that a personal, absolute, and uncontrolled regime whose chief autocrat has never set foot in the country he is governing is fatally bound to produce the majority of grave deeds pointed out by the American traveler. Williams would have continued his attempts to expose Leopold's crimes to the world. But as he completed his circuit around Africa, he fell ill with tuberculosis. In August 1891, he died at the age of 41. Had Williams survived, he would have seen conditions in the Congo become even more hellish. Over the next few years, the violence, oppression, and misery increased. And it was all thanks to a new resource, rubber. A rubber boom began in the early 1890s because of industrial demands for tires, hoses, tubing, and insulation. Unfortunately for the Congo's inhabitants, much of the colony was covered in rubber trees. By the late 1890s, rubber had overtaken ivory as the most profitable commodity extracted from the Congo. Collecting rubber was difficult, painful work, which had to be performed over a wide area, making it virtually impossible for Leopold's agents to manage the work directly. In order to compel locals to harvest rubber for them, Leopold's men would kidnap people from villages, typically women, children, or elders, and hold them hostage until a quota was met. Those who didn't work fast enough were often killed in order to scare the survivors into working harder. To prove to Leopold's agents that the punishment had been carried out, the victim's severed hands were collected as proof. Leopold's force publique was compelled to carry out the dirty work. After the Europeans complained that the soldiers were wasting too many bullets on their executions, the FP started hacking off the hands of men who were still alive. But while severed hands became one of the more infamous and memorable punishments, it certainly wasn't the only way to motivate the Congolese to meet their rubber quotas. According to historian Theo Aronson, villages were burned, men flogged, women mutilated, children chained in sheds as hostages, or flung into crocodile-infested rivers, whole clans wiped out. Tribes fled in terror across the borders. Those who survived lived a nightmare existence. The exact number of people who died under Leopold's Congo regime is impossible to determine for certain. A conservative estimate is that between 1896 and 1906, the population of the Congo dropped by 3 million. However, the consensus among most historians is that the number of deaths is probably closer to 10 million, or about half the population. The king's personality only exacerbated the already exploitative and racist conditions of colonialism. In response to the criticism laid against him, Historian Adam Hochschild suggests that the tone Leopold sounded was always of annoyance or self-pity, never of shame or guilt. 
After seeing a newspaper cartoon of himself chopping off African hands with a sword, Leopold snorted with derision. He supposedly said, Cut off hands? That's idiotic. I'd cut off all the rest of them, but not the hands. That's the one thing I need in the Congo. As the violence in the Congo intensified, so too did criticism of Leopold and his regime. Many others picked up where George Washington Williams had left off. One was a Black American Presbyterian missionary and reverend named William Shepard. Starting in 1890, Shepard spent nearly two decades traveling throughout Africa, witnessing the many atrocities committed on Leopold's behalf. Unwilling to remain silent, Shepard wrote about what he saw for missionary magazines, inspiring others to take a closer look at the Congo. But perhaps the most consequential person to challenge King Leopold was a young clerk for the Elder Dempster Lines Shipping Company named Edmund Denny Morell. And at some point in the 1890s, the 20-something Morell stumbled upon the truth about Leopold's colony. After seeing a report of large quantities of rifles and ammunition being shipped to the Congo, Morell began to wonder why war materials were needed in the colony. Even more concerning was the fact that these shipments were not on the official logs. After confirming with his own eyes that the elder Dempster ships were carrying weapons and ammunition, Morell decided to dig deeper. He then discovered that while massive amounts of ivory and rubber were being taken from the Congo, virtually nothing was being sent back to pay for it all. Thus, while Leopold was painting himself as an anti-slavery humanitarian, the king was, in effect, one of the world's largest slavers. Morel went to his superiors and demanded that something be done. His bosses tried to get rid of him by offering him a promotion in another country. But Morel refused. He was then offered 200 pounds a year in consulting fees, essentially a bribe for him to stay quiet. Again, Morel refused. Finally, Morel had had enough. In 1901, he quit Elder Dempster and devoted his time to attacking the unimaginable barbarities being committed in the Congo Free State. He started his own journal and published hundreds of articles and three books throughout Europe. As the criticism intensified, Leopold realized that there was finally a legitimate threat against his colonial claim. If he wanted to keep his iron grip over the Congo, he was going to have to marshal every resource at his disposal or lose everything. Coming up, Leopold struggles to hold on to his colony in the face of mounting international pressure. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. 
Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Now back to the story. At the turn of the 20th century, Edmund Morell, a young employee of the Elder Dempster Shipping Company, had stumbled upon the horrors of King Leopold II's regime in the Congo. After being rebuffed by his superiors, Morell dedicated his life to bringing down Leopold's reign of terror. It's no revelation that human beings are often apathetic to the plight of distant, unknown people. Even today, in the age of information, it remains difficult to rouse ordinary, well-meaning folks from complacency. But before television or the Internet, when still photography was a new medium, convincing the world of what was happening in the Congo required tremendous time and effort. And while we have the benefit of hindsight, at the time, most Europeans and Americans would have received conflicting reports on what was really going on in Africa. Racism, of course, played a large part as well. People like Edmund Morell and William Henry Shepard had to work tirelessly for years to shape public opinion and make the truth known. Morell became a particularly nasty thorn in Leopold's side, frequently publishing leaked documents about the colony. Morell also received first-hand accounts from British, American, and Swedish missionaries, as well as former Force Publique soldiers. These witnesses brought back official documents to publish in his journal, including photos of burnt villages, tortured locals, and mutilated children. Another important contributor was a Nigerian man named Hezekiah Andrew Chanu, who had formerly recruited soldiers for the Force Publique. He even ran his own successful businesses in the Congo, owning a grocery store, tailor shop, and laundry. Chanu risked a great deal to provide evidence to Morel. When Leopold's agents found out, they couldn't arrest Chanu because he was a British citizen. Instead, they harassed him and his businesses so relentlessly that he committed suicide. Thanks to the work of Morel, Chanu, and many others, the world began to wake up to the truth about Leopold's Congo. In May 1903, the British Parliament unanimously passed a resolution lambasting Leopold for his monopoly in the Congo and demanding that the Congo Free State be governed with humanity. After the Parliament vote, the British Foreign Office told one of their diplomats, Roger Casement, to travel into the Congo and send back reports. Casement spent almost four months traveling around the Congo. He sent a barrage of dispatches about the atrocities he saw, viciously criticizing the colony's administration. At the end of 1903, Casement returned to Europe to compile his report, which was published early the next year. Baffled by what Casement detailed and worried about diplomatic repercussions, the Foreign Office softened the report by removing all the names and replacing them with initials. Frustrated, Casement turned to Morell. Together, they created the Congo Reform Association. By the time the association held its first meeting in March 1904, 
it had the support of British earls, viscounts, businessmen, and members of parliament. Over the next few years, Morel and his supporters wrote tens of thousands of letters. Important, too, were the mass meetings calling on the government to intervene in the Congo. Even the American humorist Mark Twain threw his hat into the ring, publishing King Leopold's Soliloquy in 1905. The pamphlet raked Leopold over the coals, and all the proceeds went to the Congo Reform Association. Joining Twain in speaking out against Leopold was educator and reformer Booker T. Washington. Washington led a delegation of black Baptists to President Theodore Roosevelt and lobbied for the U.S. government to take action. As Morell's crusade began to catch steam, Leopold reacted by pretending to be just as shocked and dismayed as everyone else. Leopold also launched his own media blitz. In friendly newspapers, he tried to assert that he was no worse than the British. When that didn't work, he claimed that the accusations were all slander and lies. He even sponsored his own writers to travel to the Congo and see for themselves. One of those writers, Mary French Sheldon, was taken on company steamboats and only permitted to see what the regime wanted her to see. The authorities went so far as to demolish a prison and move the prisoners before Sheldon passed by. Leopold also attempted to hire American lobbyists to try and influence the U.S.'s response. Unfortunately for Leopold, this backfired. After a payroll dispute, one of his hired hands, Colonel Henry I. Kowalski, became frustrated. In retaliation, he sold his correspondence with Leopold to newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst. The expose detailed how Leopold had not only bribed Kowalski, but also a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Once the story broke, there was outrage across America. Finally, U.S. politicians decided to join the British to make Leopold end his tyrannical reign in the Congo. Leopold could no longer deceive the world as easily as he had years earlier. And he had himself to blame for that. Beyond the Congo atrocities, Leopold had a reputation as one of the most scandalous royals in Europe. When he was 65, Leopold began an affair with a 16-year-old sex worker named Caroline Lacroix, who the press referred to as the Queen of the Congo. Leopold put little or no effort into hiding the affair. Newspapers in Europe and beyond disparaged the king, while his fellow heads of state were disgusted. President Theodore Roosevelt refused to allow Leopold to attend the St. Louis World's Fair, calling him a dissolute old rake. And while Leopold was burning bridges with heads of state, he was doing as much damage to his own family as possible. He threw his eldest daughter into an asylum when she ran off with a man who wasn't her husband and subsequently racked up large debts. When Austrian Emperor Franz Josef suggested that Leopold ought to pay off his daughter's debts, the king responded, As far as I am concerned, my daughter is dead. Meanwhile, when Leopold's middle daughter remarried against his wishes after she had been widowed, Leopold refused to speak to her ever again. Even worse, he barred her from attending her mother's funeral. At one point, two of the daughters joined forces and attempted to sue Leopold for their inheritance. 
Unfortunately, they lost. Suffice it to say that even before stories of the Congo splashed across newspapers, Leopold's reputation was nothing short of diabolical. For the public, believing that Leopold was guilty of atrocities in the Congo Free State was all too easy. Even though the Belgian government was poised to inherit the colony on Leopold's death, it became clear that Parliament would have to take control of the Congo sooner rather than later. Something needed to be done. But Leopold wasn't about to let go of his colony for free. Before he would hand over the Congo, he forced the Belgian Parliament to complete, at its own expense, the public building projects he had begun in Belgium. And, as one last twist of the knife, Leopold demanded and received an additional two million francs as a mark of national gratitude. Parliament acquiesced. On November 15, 1908, King Leopold's control over the Congo came to an end. A year after relinquishing control of the Congo, Leopold suffered from an intestinal blockage. On his deathbed, he married his young mistress, Caroline Lacroix. When his daughters came to Brussels to reconcile with him, Leopold turned them away. On December 17, 1909, 74-year-old King Leopold II died. At the time of his death, Leopold was so despised that his funeral cortege was booed by crowds of Belgians. It's difficult to determine just how much wealth Leopold took from the Congo as he avoided announcing his profits. In fact, he usually insisted that he made no money at all from the colony. One estimate suggests that between 1896 and 1906, the king may have made three million pounds sterling, which is equivalent to 15 million U.S. dollars at the time. Now that Leopold was finally gone, Many hoped that suffering in the Congo would come to an end. While the worst atrocities did diminish under Belgian administration, the system of forced labor, heavy taxation, hostage-taking, and brutal punishments remained. The Belgian Congo lasted until 1960, when the colony finally achieved independence, renaming itself the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Unfortunately, despite their newfound autonomy, the area never recovered from Leopold's rule. And to this day, the nation continues to struggle with political, social, and economic turmoil. Meanwhile, in Belgium, Leopold II's legacy remains controversial. The nation, particularly the capital of Brussels, is still adorned with public buildings erected by Leopold paid for with wealth plundered from the Congo at the cost of millions of lives. However, in 2020, Belgians started a petition to remove all statues of Leopold from Brussels. Those who put together the petition stated, we do not want to erase the past, but we do want to erase any homage to this man. In June 2020, for the first time, a Belgian monarch expressed remorse for the country's colonial rule. Some, however, criticized King Philippe for falling short of a full apology. Of course, not everyone in the family expresses remorse. 
The king's brother, Prince Laurent, said in an interview, Leopold II never went to the Congo himself. I do not see how he could have made people there suffer. Over 100 years later, there's still a disconnect between the royal family and the Congolese lives destroyed because of their ancestors. For Belgium and for the Congo, the scars of Leopold's reign may never heal. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we move to Austria-Hungary and explore the long reign of Emperor Franz Josef. Among the many sources we used, we found The Coburgs of Belgium by Theo Aronson and King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hochschild, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and Joe Guerra, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new ParCast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who are far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify. Spotify.